Happy Monday, everyone. This is CIA Files Headline Edition. How are you doing, Brandon? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it was, cool. been a beautiful Sunday here in Kazakhstan, and I went to Jumping Goat Restaurant and had um, brunch. It was kind of um, interesting because, you know, before I moved here, well, actually, before I left the United States, I was living in Georgia. And the guy that owns this restaurant, now Mahdi's from Georgia. It's like, ah, oh, small world. And not the country, Georgia, the state of Georgia. Right. And um, yeah, he moved here and set up a cafe. And it's kind of American themed. I like the, the plates are like, get the, the Texas, which is uh, like an egg burrito or something or, or <laughs> the Georgia, which two, uh, two scrambled eggs and bacon. So that's yeah, kind of okay. fun. Do you, uh, is goat a normal food where you're at? Oh, yeah. Goat is a normal food, but I don't know why they call it jumping goat because I don't think they serve goat. But goat is a very common food here. <laughs> Horse is very common here. I'm assuming you've had goat in your travels. Have you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had goat in, in my how, how is it? What does it compare to? Yeah, it's a good meat. Oh, I, I, it's it's actually my probably my favorite meat, um, which is you know it's kind of hard because I'm trying to cut down on on the the meat I eat, but yeah, goat is is um it's my favorite. I don't know, I do not understand why it's not more popular. I guess it has to do with um, mass production. It's just easier. Some other animals are easier to mass produce, but taste wise, it's a very tasty meat. Yeah, I've. I've been curious to try it. I I love goat cheese, but I haven't run across any goat. Of course, I haven't sought it out, but (laughs) I've never left the States. I've never left the continental 48. So, but yeah, I've been curious. Um, Yeah. Here in the States, it's uh, beef, chicken and pork. And (laughs) well, if you really want, if you really want goat, uh, I don't know, call up your local mosque. (laughs) and <laughs> just say hey i'm looking for a goat do where do where do you guys when when you where do you get your goat from and i'm sure they'll tell you which butcher or a farmer you can get it from interesting the thing is i would try it but i'm pretty sure nobody else in the house would would try it unless i just didn't tell them <laughs> but that's well, good for the goats <laughs> <laughs> it's good, good news for the goats all right, well let's uh let's get into what's happening around the world. I'm sure it's there's nothing much going on, probably pretty boring. Um, <laughs> let's take a look at the first headline. He's trying to stave off World War 3. Uh, let's see. This this sounds boring. UK warships headed to sail for Black Sea in May. Oh wait, that's not boring at all. <laughs> that's that's yeah, so uh, if you've been following, you know, the global news at all, uh, you've probably noticed that there's a situation brewing um, with U- with Ukraine and Russia. As you know, for the past little while now, Russia has been building up forces 
uh, very close to the border with Ukraine, which has a lot of people worried that they are intent to move in and try to annex more of Ukraine like they did with uh, Crimea. And so uh, it looks like this is, you know, uh, obviously the United States is there to uh, try to discourage this. And now the UK is getting in on it. You mean the UK? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Not the UK is getting yeah. in on it. Okay. Um, so right now I'm uh, reading from Reuters. Uh, this was uh, today, uh, early this morning, and t- t- with today being April eighteenth, Sunday. Although you'll be hearing this on, you know, on Monday, but um, Reuters is reporting British warships will sail for the Black Sea in May amid rising tensions between R- Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the Sunday Times newspaper reported, citing senior naval sources. Uh, The deployment is aimed at showing solidarity with UK and Britain's NATO allies. While Ukraine is, um, they have a relationship with NATO. Um, They're classified as an enhanced opportunity partner, or they're in the enhanced opportunity partner interoperability program. Um, but they are not a member of NATO and they have been trying to join NATO, especially with uh, Russia, you know, showing more and more, I guess I don't want to say aggression, but, you know, telegraphing a lot of movements that they still have Putin, that, that Putin still has his eyes on, Ukraine. Um, so Ukraine is trying to join NATO, but it appears that they have, you know, the help of NATO members. The U.S. and Britain are are there to help them. But so three days ago, uh, Air Force General Todd Walters announced that uh, they believe there was a low to medium risk that Russia will invade Ukraine over the next few weeks. So they don't think, it seems like they're not concerned about any immediate action from Russia. And Walters, um, as he talked about this, he said he seems to think that if things continue on the path they're on now, that ru- the chance that Russia will invade Ukraine is going to go down. He told uh, Congress members, My sense is, with the trend that I see right now, that the likelihood of an occurrence will start to wane. So, maybe that's good news. It would be nice if... uh, I mean, to to give some background on it, um, when the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, Eastern Europe started joining um, NATO, like Poland and the Baltic states, and that very much um, upset Russia because... They're like, hold it. You guys are, you know, organizing uh, against us. This is rather threatening. And then on top of that, there was the issue with these, um, the nuclear weapons in Ukraine. 
And a deal was brokered where Ukraine would give up these, these nuclear warheads to Russia. And in exchange, the United States and uh, Great Britain guaranteed Ukraine's independence. And of course, you know, that language can be vague, you know, just because uh, Russia took Crimea, that's not a, the elimination of Ukrainian independence. Um, they're all, I mean, there's some pretty clear parallels here between like World War I and World War II and how the German leadership handled the humiliation of the collapse of the country and land being taken and a realignment of power and how Russia is dealing with it. Um, Russia has annexed Crimea, which to be fair, is, was a Russian speaking area. Um, historically, it was not part of Ukraine. Um, I'm not really sure that I believe the, election that occurred there that the people really did want to be annexed by Russia. I honestly don't know. It's, it's feasible. It's feasible that they did. Right. Well, there's definitely a, a, a contingent of citizens there that did want to join Russia. And I would say that's um, analogous to um, Austria when, and the Anschluss, when Austria and Germany were kind of reunited, like, oh, we're reuniting our territory. And then right after that, there was this uh, border region in what's now the Czech Republic, the Sudetenland, which had um, a strong German presence. I'm pretty, I'm, I'd have to look up the demographics again, but I'm pretty sure they were the majority um, there in the Sudetenland. And so under the guise of protecting them from discrimination, um, Germany is like, ah, oh, we have to occupy this and, and reunite it. And so that to me seems to be analogous to Ukraine and the border areas there. And so they're saying, ah, this, this area here. Yeah, because that's a, very much along the same lines of Putin's reasoning, or at least his public reasoning anyway, for annexing Crimea and the troop buildup. Now he says that they're there to protect the Russian speaking population there and to, you know, there's a contingent of separatists in Ukraine who are, you know, who want to join Russia and leave Ukraine. Um, and so Putin is saying he's there to protect them. I guess. Right. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, that, the, the history kind of rhymes here. And so I guess England, you know, they don't want a Neville Chamberlain it, um, which I, I think Neville, Neville Chamberlain was, was greatly misunderstood. But nonetheless, he's the, the guy that's, um, you know, accredited or accused of appeasing Hitler and saying, oh, well, if we just give him the Sudetenland, he'll be happy. And right. um, so I'm sure... But there was an the, argument that Neville Chamberlain was actually just stalling for time. Correct, correct. Because he he had the he was uh, he was the one behind getting lots of money put into the military um, to build up, and like he he knew that they could not take on Germany at that point, and so while he was kind of giving Hitler what he wanted, he was also ramping up military production. Uh, so he. 
he was probably misunderstood. I mean, that's kind of the thing. I mean, people people get a very facile understanding of history and don't really look into the inner workings and and what was going on. And right. there's a lot more to it than him just saying, okay, Hitler, you can have the Sudetenland. Please don't fight us. Right. There's much more than that. Well, because that narrative yeah. would have been uh, like sort of twisted with the, the following election in England at the time. And then the election narrative, the political narrative within England would have maybe sort of glommed on to the, to the, the overall story of what <laughs> right, happened right. there, if that makes sense. I, was like, I imagine England doesn't want to repeat the, the same image problem. And so they see this as the next Sudetenland and are like, Hey, we're going to show up. We're going to at least make a, make it known that we're not going to sit by. Yeah. So we'll be paying attention to that situation as it plays out. Um, According to the Air Force General, uh, Todd Walters, you know, they seem to be perhaps cautiously optimistic that things won't escalate there, but we'll have to see. And then speaking of Russia, a lot of uh, news related to Russia this week. Um, Alexei Navalny is, you know, he's been in prison since he returned from Germany um, after he was poisoned allegedly by, uh, you know, the FBN new news outlets are reporting that uh, Putin critic Alexei Navalny could die at any moment. That's according to uh, doctors in Russia since he returned from Germany after recovering from uh, a failed assassination attempt. Uh, he stayed in Germany long enough to recuperate. Then he flew back to Russia where he was immediately arrested on charges of. The, he violated his, um, his um, probation. That was the whole thing about that as he was on probation. But I'm talking about the original charges that he was on probation from. Oh, not saying bless you after someone sneezed. <laughs> no, it was, he was charged with, uh, some sort of, uh, financial crimes. So yeah, uh, Navalny had been charged with, uh, financial crimes that he said were completely made up. So since Navalny has, you know, returned from Germany, he was arrested immediately for breaking probation from a previous charge that he said was false. And he's been in prison. Um, Since he's been in prison, he said that he has not received any medical care. Um, He's, you know, that it's the entire experience has just been especially terrible, I guess more terrible than normal for a Russian prison. Um, and he has been on a hunger strike for the last three weeks. Um, his physician, uh, Yaroslav Ashikman, this is from an NPR article. Physician Yaroslav Ashikman said test results that Navalny's family shared with him reveal increased potassium levels, 
which could lead to cardiac arrest, as well as heightened creatinine levels from deteriorating kidneys. Our patient could die at any moment, uh, Ashikman wrote, according to a translated version of his Facebook post on Saturday. Navalny's spokeswoman, uh, Kira Yarmish, also said the 44-year-old politician is in ailing health and that he's lost sensation in his limbs. Uh, Alexei is dying, she said on Facebook. In his condition, it is a matter of days, and on the weekend, lawyers just can't get to him, and no one knows what will happen on Monday. So it's not looking good for Navalny right now. Um, Just a few days ago, well, I guess it was actually about two weeks ago, on the April 6th, um, some doctors tried to go to the prison to see if they could tend to him, and they were actually arrested. Uh, they were released later, at least one of them. There were nine arrests. Some of them have been released since then. But his health has been uh, constantly deteriorating since he's been in prison. And He's saying that along with not giving him any medical treatment, the guards come in to check on him every hour at night and they wake him up. So he's also being deprived of sleep. Um, And that would be why he started a hunger strike three weeks ago. Um, I just don't know how effective a hunger strike might be in Russia under Putin. Uh, well, yeah, I could be wrong, but I feel if he dies, that's the whole thing with the hunger strike is if the person dies then it's like you killed him because you let him die, but it's also um, a human rights violation to force feed people. So, um, you know, it kind of puts the, the state in a rock and hard place. Um, I heard they were uh, frying chicken outside of his um, cell to, you know, get him all hungry. Oh, that's cold. But <laughs> <laughs> so don't you want some? Yeah. So um, we'll see uh, if he dies soon. Uh, I don't think that he's going to be getting out of prison anytime soon, but stranger things have happened. Uh, maybe, maybe they have. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, the guy's got his crusade and, uh, I mean, I don't know that the, you could say the West has turned their back on him completely. I mean, they treated him in Germany and such, and he's trying to play chess with Putin on this. Uh, and I don't really know that he's got that much of a, a good hand to play. Yeah, he's probably playing with, you know, how many pieces could he possibly have on the board? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like Putin is just like, I will ignore you into submission. Right. And, well, actually, he hasn't ignored him. He's had him put in jail on what Navalny is saying are trumped up charges. So yeah. that, is, <laughs> that is not ignoring. Yeah. So, uh, and then the... The last bit of news about Russia uh, has to do with the U.S. adding new sanctions uh, against Russia over a 
a new report this is from NPR. Uh, U.S. slaps new sanctions on Russia over cyber attack election meddling. So this is related to mostly it's about the solar winds hack that uh, that became apparent uh, not that long ago. It was a huge hack that affected computers all across the country and the the computers were these were be involved in major corporations as well as a lot of government offices the solar winds hack was massive um and so the us has uh, you know enacted new sanctions against russia uh but buried in the sanctions there was also um new talk about Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. Uh, information that um, didn't seem to be apparent under the Mueller investigation. Right. Well, Mueller's focus was, I think, looking for collaboration or cooperation. Hey, um, some of it's probably new information that's come out. Like the, this might have been information from after Mueller's time. Well, and I think some of it was information that was in Mueller's report, but because of the politics at the time with Trump in office and uh, the GOP in charge of the Senate, um, it just didn't, it was all downplayed, but there was more information about one of the, the people working for Trump who colluded with Russia. Collusion. That was the word. <laughs> Collusion. Well, that he passed along information that ended up with, uh, the Russian government and that they passed information to him from hacking that they had done. But yeah, so there are new sanctions mostly due to the solar winds hack. So according to the article from NPR, Biden said Thursday that the United States isn't pushing for quote, a cycle of escalation and conflict with Russia, but instead for both nations to manage tensions and work together when needed. So, you know, Biden is trying to be an actual politician about this, I guess, as opposed to Trump, who was his response was to stick his fingers in his ears and go, everything's fine. Biden seems to be uh, playing the role of, uh, you know, like tough but fair, a tough but fair leadership. Uh, he said, quote, my bottom line is this. Where it is in the interest of the United States to work with Russia, we should and we will. If Russia seeks to violate the interests of the United States, we will respond. We will always stand in defense of our country, our institutions, our people, and our allies. So, yeah, Biden is like trying to leave a door open to work with Putin, but also trying to say, you know, we're not putting up with your bullshit. Biden's got no choice but to to react. I mean, if if he doesn't do something about new reports, even if it's old news or something that happened before, he's he's got to react to that. But also, like the definition of a, of like national sovereignty is a nation's ability to deal protect itself from foreign influence, and the elections are 
pretty much it's like it's a territorial attack that's like almost putting soldiers on someone else's land right you know, interfering with their elections right. so now of course the united states is no angel in this department either but two wrongs doesn't make a right you know uh, so we yeah, have like biden has to react to this especially since a lot of the campaign was built on oh trump's really easy on russia and yeah, he, he's put some sanctions on some Russian people, but really it was all show. And so, yeah, Biden's got to step up there and say, hey, this will not be tolerated. Listen here, pal. We're not putting up with your malarkey. You get off those uh, computers <laughs> and you leave our computers alone. Oh, of course. Now I'm imagining, um, yeah, like, you know, Roman history with the auxiliaries, but now the Russian auxiliaries and mercenary forces are you know, like Macedonian or Bulgarian hackers. And it's like, ah, oh, the auxiliaries have come a long way. Right. And then the, the Russian IRA, the Internet Research Agency, a giant building full of Internet writers churning out fake stories and whatnot. <laughs> but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, you know, of course, Trump's. Uh, method of dealing with this was to do exactly what you were saying they can't do, which was to ignore it. He, you know, didn't address it at all or shrugged his shoulders at it. So um, it'll be interesting to watch it play out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is pretty standard stuff, you know, like, oh, we're going to, we're going to put on a sanction and, oh, well, we're going to recall our diplomats and it's, um, Diplomatically speaking, uh, you know, a little black cat firecracker. And then uh, in in response to the sanctions, Russia did respond two days ago. And this is coming from CNN. Russia sanctions eight U.S. officials and expels diplomats in retaliation for Biden's actions. Yeah, that's I mean, that's the, the very typical textbook. Yeah, you did something that made us angry, so we're going to send some of your diplomats home. And I don't know how they pick which diplomats have to go home. I think it's, uh, okay, the Russians say five of us have to leave, so who wants to go back? Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I think sometimes they do pick certain, they, they you know, will pick certain ones and say, ah, oh, well, they're working with an NGO we don't like, so they need to go back. Yeah. And the, same, the people that... Uh, Russia has sanctioned include FBI Director Christopher Wray and Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines. I guess they're just going to have to telework. They'll be on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, U.S. Ambassador to Russia John Sullivan, uh, he was told to return to Washington for detailed and serious consultations. And then Russia's ambassador, uh, he left and went back to Moscow back in March. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like your your typical shuffling around of officials to for each side to let the other side know we mean business, Buster. Right. Yeah, it's just a show. So, um, moving on from Russia. About a week ago, Vice uh, published an interesting article um, by Matthew Galt. Uh, the headline, 
the CIA's tweets about Tupac are vital to the legitimation of the agency. <laughs> legitimation? Come on. So the article is basically about how the CIA uses Twitter and that their use of Twitter is helping to sort of humanize the agency and to normalize the activities they get up to. Um, it said here, their first tweet was in January 6, 2014. Quote, we can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet. So, you know, it's a little jokey. Most most government agencies' Twitter accounts are very dry, you know, just putting out um, statements, um, press releases, that sort of thing. But the CIA, you know, because a large chunk of what the CIA does is marketing. Right. You know, the, and I feel like if you, if you like have a good background in marketing that there you would fit in well with that part of the CIA, like their psyops department, because uh, yeah, that's always been a huge part of what they do. And this is, it is marketing and it reminds me of the genius and prophecy of idiocracy. All right. So, I'll get to idiocracy in just a second, but with marketing, you got this whole thing about companies kind of pretending they're people. So they get their Twitter account and especially like they're depressed people. So it started with getting these emails and things about, oh, we care about you as if they're a person, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. Insurance loves you and is there to help. Uh huh. And now it's, of course, you know, they have their Twitter accounts and they post things as if they're a depressed person and taking it to its logical conclusion. One day you will walk into a Costco or a Walmart and the person will say, welcome to Costco. I love you. Welcome to Costco. I love you. Right. And, right. I mean, that's all it is. Is this a CIA kind of pretending to be a person and taking on that role? Yeah. And so this article is in response to um, a new uh, a new study that was just published. The study is called No, We Don't Know Where Tupac Is, Critical Intelligence Studies and the CIA on Social Media. It was published in Intelligence and National Security. The study was uh, the work of Reese Crilly, a professor and research, research associate at the University of Glasgow, who focuses on how narratives focus politics and policy. The study says the use of social media by intelligence agencies should not simply be understood as a tool for PR and recruitment purposes. I'm reading from the Vice article. According to the study, the CIA uses social media to make itself seem legitimate. Through social media, the CIA ingratiates itself on public life, becomes another brand tweeting weird things in the middle of the day. The study says when intelligence agencies use social media, they engage in practices of identity construction that narrate themselves and their actions in positive ways, representing themselves and their actions as legitimate. So it's an interesting article. And of course, we'll have a link to this article and the other articles we've referenced up on our website, CIAfiles.net. 
but it's an interesting look at how the CIA uses Twitter to like, it goes beyond branding, I think, in that it it's an effort to normalize all of the extra legal and unethical things that they may get up to. So the people, instead of, like, so if a per- person hears another thing about something that the CIA's done, as opposed to getting outraged and demanding change, they just kind of like chuckle to themselves and goes, you know, like, oh, those darn, that darn CIA <laughs> at it again. <laughs> How them Duke boys going to get out of this one? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, from the article, even if the jokes aren't funny or don't land, it doesn't matter. With every tweet, the CIA is building an identity as a poster. Uh, the study said, quote, it serves to normalize, domesticate, and legitimize particular intelligence activities while at the same time obscuring others, such as violent acts, extraordinary rendition, indefinite detention, and drone programs. Um, and then the article brings up something that I wasn't aware of, but then I looked at and it was really interesting. On the fifth anniversary of the raid that killed Osama bin Laden, uh, the CIA decided to live tweet the event as if it was happening then, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, definitely a move. It's a bold move uh, on their part. But yeah, it's just another look into it's a bit dystopian. Yeah, definitely. I'd say probably more than a bit. <laughs> the The CIA has, I think, has been on the cutting edge of. PR and what they call perception management for decades. I almost suspect that a lot of the techniques that they come up with to manage their image and to influence public opinion, that those are the techniques that eventually trickle down to the private sector, sort of the same way that military technology will um eventually trickle down to the private sector, like GPS and um, stuff like that? I don't know. I think you might be giving them too much credit. I think it might be more of a trickle up or trickle laterally. The might exist more in the private sphere, and then they get wind of it. That could be true. I just know, as I've been studying the history of the CIA, that's always been a huge key part. Of course, when you talk about warfare and international conflict, Propaganda, you know, is uh, always been there. You know, if you look back at World War One. I, I think it was in World War One, the first time we had a major war that involved uh, air power. One of the things was to drop leaflets on soldiers of the opposing side to try to convince them to either quit or change sides. <coughs> so it's nothing new, but. It's interesting to watch it unfold in, you know, cyberspace and um, social media. Well, yeah, it's a quick adaptation. I mean, live tweeting. I mean, tweet. It's a new a new weapon. I mean, and social media has been a weapon. I think we have to admit that the um, Russians have been ahead of us. That you know, when it comes to uh, the winning of hearts and minds, uh, creating. Um, discord uh, on the social, you know, using social media, the the Russians have really 
gotten their money's worth and to whatever investment they put into it. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting article to bring up. Um, just, you know, if you, to, to get a little more insight into how the CIA operates in managing its public image. Now we can shift our focus over to the Philippines as um, tensions have been rising there with China slowly trying to occupy contested territory. China has been uh, slowly but steadily sort of annexing small islands near the Philippines and Vietnam and setting up military bases there. And um, the most recent one has been uh, the Whitson Reef, which is um, the Philippines claim it as their territory. Um, Vietnam says they have a claim to it. And of course, China says they have a claim to it. But I think that the general consensus is that it's uh, Philippine territory. Back in March, about 200 Chinese boats sort of landed on the island and the Philippines popped up and said, Hey, what's up with these boats? China said that they were just fishing vessels that had, that were coming in to shelter from bad weather. Um, Philippines and the U S too were like, I don't know if we believe you or not. And so there's been some mounting tension there with the U S uh, we sent some, uh, some warships down there, but now it's looking like um, China is backing down. This is a Forbes article from Friday, the 15th of April. China blinks as American Philippine fleets challenge possible reef seizure. This says that the uh, growing fleet of Chinese boats first showed up around Whitson Reef in December. Uh, And this is... um, Whitson Reef is about 200 miles west of the Philippines in the South China Sea. Uh, By March, that number had gone up to about 220 boats near the reef, but now the Chinese boats are starting to disperse. Um, So it looks like once the U.S. started sending uh, ships down there, maybe China has decided to back off of that particular uh, bit of land. This isn't the first time they've done this. Yeah, I mean, China takes their nine-dash line pretty seriously. And I mean, they probably have some truth to their their claims, or some of their claims at least. Um, But yeah, the Philippines and the Vietnamese and some of these others also have some some pretty good claims as well. And I imagine they're, they're probing. They were seeing what they could get away with. They've kind of um, bullied their way into creating some artificial islands um, to work as, you know, military bases or leap, you know, was it? Outposts. Uh, or leap pads in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Outposts, however you want to term it. And they. Places well, that would, that would help. Uh, increase like their operational distance. Yeah. They, they, you, they want to be able to control that area for a variety of reasons. I mean, there could be um, like natural gas 
any number of um, resources. And if they you know, can claim the land or the islands, they can start claiming what's around it. And, you know, now they, they believe they are breaking peace and security because, oh, well, if you have all these nations there, there could be some trouble. But if China's the dominant power, then we can make sure that all the boats are flowing and everything's just great and dandy. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of their, their take on it. And yeah, they're pushing and prodding to see what they can get away with. And they've gotten away with a lot. So I don't exactly blame them. Um, right. You know, it's kind of like a little kid or anyone like, let me, let me see if I can sneak something out of the cookie jar. I can. I'm going to try again. Right. Until I hear no. And it seems to be like they got a no, but they'll, they'll, they'll prod somewhere else. They'll keep keep expanding and solidifying their hold on on that area. It's power over the fishing lanes, uh, power over the fishing grounds, uh, the ability to control the, the shipping lanes or protect them, and whatever natural resources are in, uh, at the bottom. They have a better claim to those as well, right? Or even, or at least um, possession is kind of like nine tenths of the law. <laughs> the Vietnamese or someone else might say it's ours, but if they've got, if the if it's a Chinese company drilling with mili- Chinese military protection, well, then I guess it's a Chinese territory all of a sudden, right? And all for all practical purposes, yeah. Um, another story that uh, is getting less attention, but is directly involved with U.S. interests abroad. But yeah, so this is happening in Africa. Uh, I'm looking at uh, Reuters right now. U.S. Embassy to withdraw staff as Chad rebels advance. Quoting here, the United States has ordered its non-essential staff in Chad to leave the African country as rebel fighters approached the capital on Sunday after early election results showed President Idris Deby on course to extend his three-decade rule. Uh, Deby, who seized power in 1990 as the head of an armed rebellion, is a staunch ally of France and the United States in the fight against Islamist militants in the arid Sahel region. So uh, it looks like President Debbie has, you know, he's maintained a hold there for 30 years, and these rebels are ready to get rid of him. And this, like, the rebels aren't new. They've been around for a while trying to oust Debbie uh, French airstrikes helped the Chad army to repel a rebel incursion from Libya in February 2019. And the U.S. government uh, isn't the first to do this. The British government on Saturday urged its citizens to leave because it said two armed convoys from the rebel Front for Change and Concord in Chad, also called FACT, uh, were advancing toward the capital. And then another convoy was seen moving toward the town of Mao in Chad. So, and now Chad security forces are out in, uh, are out in the streets right now patrolling. Um, the Chad army said it destroyed a rebel convoy uh, Saturday. So it's looking like the election that's coming up, um, that's coming up soon Debbie looks to be uh, like he will win 
And so I'm guessing that that is adding more mer- um, urgency for the rebels to get rid of him. So we'll see. We'll see uh, if the West, if France and the United States decide to, you know, send more military aid to block that off. Seems possible if, you know, if Debbie has been an ally of the Western powers. Yeah. I mean, I lived in West Africa for a while. The, um, yeah, that's, um, the French still maintain a very strong presence there. And, um, you know, they, they're doing a fair enough job of fighting, um, terrorism. I mean, uh, about as well as the U S is doing, I would, I would suppose. And so this is, you know, the, this, uh, strong man or quasi dictator is something of the devil, you know? And so I don't really know that much about this rebel group. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. They, a lot of times dictators are, are not necessarily the nicest groups of rebels will, you know, kind of cover themselves with uh, the idea of, ah, oh, well, we're, we're trying to set up a democracy or a republic. And you have to take those claims with a grain of salt. And I'm pretty sure this, this Derby fellow is not the, the, an angel in any sense, but you know, I, this is going to be a complicated situation because anytime you have a rebel group, what they bring is not necessarily going to be better than what they got rid of. Um, in the history of revolution, that, that tends to be the case. Um, every once in a while, a revolution will bring about some positive change. But uh, for revolutions to work out well and democratically, they have to truly be supported by a majority and be kind of bottom-up. Right. And it's a, a small group that imposes their will usually doesn't work out very well. All right. Well, I mean, that's all the headlines that we have this week. Um, I'm sure that there's plenty that we didn't get around to covering. There's a situation playing out in Eritrea uh, with the Tigray. That's a situation that I'm trying to keep an eye on. um, And we'll have some updates on at some point. Uh, If there are other stories that you know, you feel are worth uh, attention. Uh, tag us on Twitter at CIA Files Podcast and uh, let us know. And any other insight that you might have, you know, add us. But you know, we are here to talk. Um, and then next week we'll be back with our uh, second part on George Hunter White and Operation Midnight Climax. It's going to be a crazy story. So, yeah, like I say, be sure to subscribe, uh, rate, and review if you can. Those things are big helps. Uh, We're on Facebook uh, at CIA Files, Instagram and Twitter at CIA Files Podcast, and our website where you can find links to the stories that we referenced CIAfiles.net. So yeah, uh, Brandon, any closing comments? Oh, um, 
Yeah. Uh, I don't think I have any, any comments. I was thinking of it. Like, <laughs> oh, here, I'll, I'll say something. With that. It's going to be a really good show. This um, The first episode kind of sets up the characters, and you think that it's going to be bizarre. It's going to be bizarre what we learn, what this the, these, these people get up to. Yes, and this and that will be our second part on George Hunter White will be our first foray into the I don't know what you'd call it, nightmare of MK Ultra. Yeah, it was um, it was a horror movie. Yeah. But yeah, uh in the meantime, have a good week and um we'll see you later. Uh, my brain just don't work.